Welcome to Life on the Other Side, stories from prisoners, their families, and those helping them find justice and redemption with Alec Klein. This podcast is sponsored by Republic Book Publishers, which brings you books tackling the important issues of the day and the upcoming book Aftermath, When It Felt Like Life Was Over by Alec Klein. For more information, please check out republicbookpublishers.com. In this episode, we hear from Kate Parker, an Oregon stay-at-home mom who was falsely accused of medical child abuse before she was set free and reunited with her family. Thanks for joining us, Kate. Hi. Thanks for having me, Alec. I appreciate it. Well, first, Kate, why don't you tell us about your life uh, before all of this happened, before you ran into all of this trouble? Um, I was a stay-at-home mom and a wife. Um, I homeschooled my kids. Two of my eight kids had complex medical needs, so I spent a lot of time taking care of them. Um, I was pretty much like, you know, your normal Joe citizen. (laughs) Right. In fact, Kate, I remember uh, this one little fact. Tell me if this is true, that before uh, you ran into the troubles you ran into, you had never even had a parking ticket in your life. Is that true? That's true. I had never, I've never been stopped by the police for traffic infringement or, um, and I've never had any, I I had never had any run-in with the law for any reason. So what was your life like back then before, before all of this? What, what, um, what was, uh, what was it like? It was like, well, it was busy. Um, I have, you know, with a lot, with a large family, a lot of kids, um, life was busy. Um, you were I, homeschooling your kids? Right? I, yeah, I've, uh, we have always been a homeschooling family. Um, um, jumping ahead, giving a little bit of a spoiler, when, when the kids were in foster care, they went to public school for um, that short time. But other than that, we've always um, homeschooled the kids. And uh, like I said, a couple of the kids had um, complex medical conditions. And so... The, a lot of time from 2000, um, well, 2011 specifically to 2013 was very busy with medical um, interventions and and doctor appointments and such. To but, what extent was the uh, faith a big part of your family life as well? Um, faith. I became a Christian. Charlie and I got married in 1991, um, and he was already a Christian and I became, I found, I became a Christian, you know, started walking with Jesus, um, in 1994. So we have always, um, relied on God. Uh, I would say faith was a, it's a cornerstone in our family. It always has been. Um, a lot of the decisions that we've made as a family were because of our faith. Um, for example, we chose to adopt, um, internationally two children because we believed that that was something that we were called to do. And so, um, God has always <clears throat> been paramount in our lives. That's wonderful. So, Kate, now tell us what happened uh, when you found yourself uh, in trouble with the law. Okay, well, I'll um, give you just a quick uh, like run-up to what happened. Um, so Joshua is my youngest um, biological child. Uh, he has, He was born with multiple medical conditions, and he wasn't predicted to have a long life. Um, because Joshua had chronic pain, a palliative care doctor on his team started him on opioid medications um, when he was five years old. And specifically, he started on oral oxycodone and fentanyl patches. And then um, the doctor informed everybody on 
um, Joshua's team that it was expected Joshua would need increased dosages of pain meds as time went on, and no one should worry about how high those dosages got because the goal was to keep Joshua pain-free. So over the course of two years, um, the dosages that he was on got extremely high. Uh, in August of 2013, um, when Joshua was, when Joshua was uh, not yet seven, uh, Charlie and I were told that Joshua was getting close to death, and the pediatrician and the palliative care doctor um, wanted him put back on hospice, but hospice wanted a simplified pain medication regimen first, and that is what led to Joshua being admitted to the hospital um, up in Portland, Oregon, which is 220 miles away from where we live, and that was he was admitted um, at the end of August 2013. When we were there, there was a doctor who was new to the team um, in, in the PICU, uh, and she was concerned about the medications that Joshua was on, and she didn't understand why Charlie and I were under the impression that he was going to die. And so she reached out to the hospital uh, child abuse pediatrician. And then without meeting or examining Joshua, um, that child abuse pediatrician, diagnosed him as a victim of medical child abuse, contacted DHS, child you know, the Child Welfare Division, and law enforcement, and that resulted in Joshua being taken into custody um, by DHS in, on September 10th, 2013. And that is what started everything. That's the, the ball rolling, I guess you'd say. That must have been an absolutely terrifying moment. Uh, do you, can you bring us back to that day when you were uh, arrested? Okay. Well, I was arrested on seven months later on April 1st, 2014. Um, I had gone and picked up Pizza Hut um, with my son Isaac. And on the way home, we had actually, um, I'd said, hey, let's take some to dad. And I think in hindsight, I think that was a God thing because it's not something I would have normally done. But we stopped by Charlie's work where he was at and we gave him a few slices and he gave me a hug and kiss which also was out of character because normally at work he would not kiss me um so it was it was very strange but it was just a quick you know love you see you, see you tonight and then I left and I got home and served up the kids and we were all eating um and there was a knock on the door and my oldest um daughter Megan got up and answered the door and she called out, um, and it was this very, like, strangled voice. And she's like, Mom, um, the police are here. And I don't, I, I cannot tell you what I thought at that exact moment because I was, it was just shock. I remember I walked over to the door, and the, the a female police officer was um, standing in our foyer. And she asked if I, I was Catherine Parker, and I said yes. And she told me she had a warrant for my arrest. And would I please turn around? And so I did. I just I turned around and put my hands behind my back. And um, it was just it was shocking. It was I I I like I still it's been years and I still I it was the it was it was I was a shock. It was I was terrified. My kids were shocked. Um, we went outside and we stood on. We have like two steps that go down, you know, from our front door. And so we were standing there. Um, a male officer came out from around the house. I guess he had been in the backyard in case, you know, they thought I was going to take off or something, which never occurred to me, of course. <laughs> and then um, my boys 
um, David and Isaac came running around. They had gone out the back door and come around the house, and they ran up to me, and Megan was out on the porch with us and was asking what's going on. I told her to call her dad. She grabbed the phone and called Charlie. Um, she asked where they were taking me. The police, the, the male cop was telling her things. Um, I don't really remember exactly what he was saying, but I, I remember Megan asking, um, would you know, will you tell my dad and handing the phone to the to trying to hand the phone to the police officer and him being really rough um, and saying, no, tell him yourself. And it was just, that was shocking. Um, and as I was being led away, uh, we'll see, sorry, before I was led away, Isaac came over and wrapped his arms around me and I, I couldn't hug him back, obviously, because I was handcuffed. Um, and I bent my head down and I, I kissed the top of his head. And then they um, led me off. And as I was walking away, Megan said, Mama. And I turned my head to look at her. And she was standing there. And she's like, it's going to be okay. And and they led me away. Um and I had no idea that it was going to be almost two years before I came home and saw my kids again. After that, you spent some time uh, in jail, as I understand. What was that like for you? Um, well, yeah, I I was lodged at um, Josephine County Jail, the jail near our home, for a couple of days. And then I was extradited up to Portland. And then I spent um, uh, six months in uh, Portland jails. And... Um, Uh, you know what? I don't. I I don't know how to put it in a really succinct way. Jail was um, very scary at first. Um, it's very cold. The food is awful. Uh, lots of drugs. Um, lots. The the profanity was just overwhelming. Um, I was lodged with in maximum security or high security. I don't know what the exact qual uh, characteristic of it is, but I was in solitary confinement 21 hours a day because of my charges. Um, and so I, you know, jail sucked, but I was never closer to God than when I was in jail. Um, I'll tell me what you mean by that. Well, when you've got 21 hours a day to yourself, um, <laughs> you, I had hours and hours and hours every day to read my Bible and to pray and to just be quiet and listen. And and God spoke to me. I mean, God, not in an audible, you know, oh, I'm hearing voices way, but he spoke to my spirit and, I, and he comforted me. And I knew that even though I was very lonely, I was not alone. And that was, um, that helped me to have the strength to, you know, get through that period of time. That's powerful, Kate. And tell us, what what were the charges and how many years were you facing potentially in prison if convicted? Um, I was, well, I was 42 felony charges and one misdemeanor. Um, it usually gets put in the, we get, it usually gets written up as 43 felonies. Um, they were, I had four assault in the first degrees, like 26 criminal mistreatment first degree. Um, there was computer crime, identity theft, um, reckless endangerment, and um, tampering with the witness because I spoke to my children and a person who lives in Chicago, Illinois, but said, told the police that um, she overheard me tell my kids 
to lie to the police. And how many years were you potentially facing in prison if convicted oh. on the charges? Um, you know what? I don't actually know. I, I've heard that it was like 30. Um, I've, but I, my attorneys never told me how long I was facing because when I asked them, how long could I possibly go to prison? Um, Lisa Ludwig was my, my lead attorney and she said, you're not going to prison, so it doesn't even matter. And, yeah. and I was like, oh, okay. So I honestly, the whole time I was up in Portland, I mean, I had no idea. It wasn't until I got home and read some articles that, that I was facing, um, um, Medill Justice Project had, that had they investigated my case and they said that, I, I believe they wrote that I had been, was looking at 30 years. Right. As you know, uh, that was a case that um, I oversaw in terms yep. of the investigation and while at the Medill Justice Project. And in fact, our understanding is that you faced so many years in prison, if convicted, it would have essentially been the rest of your life. Uh, yes. But, but Kate, so explain how, in the end, uh, you were uh, able to go back home and that you were set free. How did that all happen, especially when you think about this, which is a case where you were accused of administering uh, medical treatment for your children, and yet you weren't actually uh, prescribing the medication. It was being prescribed by doctors, and it was the uh, the medical professional uh, or professionals who were uh, dictating the uh, the care. Uh, so, how in the end uh, were you able to uh, resolve all this? Well, the yeah, the the theory that the state was working under was that I somehow manipulated doctors to perform unnecessary medical treatment for my children. Um, well, that was they said I uh, I did unnecessary medical treatment for Joshua, but that I was neglecting Bethany's medical needs. Um, and uh, it was a creative theory, according to my attorneys. Um, so. How did, when Medill Justice Project investigated the case, um, they spoke with witnesses. They were able to go through the actual evidence in the case, um, you know, go, the police reports, the, you know, medical records, everything. And they um, published their findings. And within a few weeks after they published their findings that outlined how everything I had Done, everything that had been done for Joshua had been medically um, required, and there was, you know, MRI evidence. Um, you know, because they said I the assault charges were based uh, or predicated on the belief that I, you know, convinced a neurosurgeon to do unnecessary brain surgery. And um, so, sorry, it's just that doesn't that's not how it works. Um, and so they. Look, you know, they saw the MRIs. They, they being the um, the police and the child abuse pediatrician, and they had told the um, neurosurgeon in her first interview that they weren't worried about the surgery she had performed on Joshua, you know, indicating that they understood that they were medically necessary. But those were the bulk of that's what the whole case was built on, were this or the surgeries that were done. So that pretty much blew a hole in their case. And after Medill uh, Justice Project. Uh, published their findings and, and shared that with the world. Um, the prosecutor in the case um, dismissed all of the charges related to the surgeries, and those were all of the serious. Those were all of the assault charges and a, and a big chunk of the criminal mistreatment charges. At that point, there were you know over still over 20 char charges, but or over 30 charges, I guess. But um, 
my trial was supposed to start um, on the 29th of February, uh, 2016. And the in the week before that, there was going to be um, a bunch of pretrial hearings. One of those hearings ha- ha- was going to be um, where this, where my attorneys were challenging the jurisdiction of over 20 charges. And um, it was anticipated um, and understood by both sides that the state um, was going to lose all of those charges because they were crime. Okay, when a when a crime is committed and a prosecutor wants to prosecute for that crime, they have to show that the crime occurred in their jurisdiction, you know, in their county, right? So, um, you know, and I had been charged with crimes that if they even occurred, which they didn't, but if they had occurred, they they occurred like in Josephine County or even in Ukraine. So the the prosecutor had ex- exercised extreme overreach in charging, and so he was going to lose all of those charges. So I would have gone to trial with something like seven charges, and five of those charges were for witness tampering, which they were not going to be able to hold those either because my kids, they already had my kids' interviews that were conducted when I was in jail, so there was no tampering. And the kids were like, this is ridiculous, that phone call never occurred. And phone records showed that that phone call never occurred. So basically, to get back to your question, the state, they they didn't have a case. I mean, they didn't. Um, And I believe that, and my attorneys also recognized this. And so we were going to go to trial. Um, But I don't know if you're aware of this. I'm sure you are. Um, Over 95 to 97% of criminal cases in the United States are resolved via a plea deal. And so um, we were ordered by the judge to uh, participate in a settlement conference. So uh, we, so my my attorney said, you know, we have to do this. And so the the states at that point, this that was in the beginning of February 2016, and the state began bringing offers, um, and we just kept turning them down because they were ridiculous. And I finally said, you know, if you want me to be a convicted felon, you're going to have to take me to trial and, and actually convict me because, you know, I had no, that was, there was no way I was going to plead to being a felon. Um, and so the state, then my attorney on the 22nd of February, my attorneys called me and said that there was another offer and this is one they wanted me to seriously consider. And they wanted me to meet them at the courthouse at one o'clock. So, it, this was like at 12. <laughs> so I, you know, hustled and got down to the courthouse and um, the deal that was offered, um, invo- what it involved was that it was a, there, there was an assurance from DHS that if I would accept the deal, they would not um, have any reason to get involved with my family and try to take my children when I came home. And that was the most important thing to me because my children had been abused while in foster care. And um, I would, you know, at that point I would have done anything to protect them from going back into foster care and being mistreated again. So um, the deal was that I would plead no contest. Um, the state didn't ask me to say I was guilty because they knew I wouldn't. They said, you plead no contest to these four misdemeanors and you agree to have five years probation and don't make medical decisions for your minor age children and we'll call it a day. 
And and my attorney said, you know what? This is you should take this because it protects your kids. And I asked if I could talk to Charlie because I wasn't allowed to talk to Charlie except with supervision. Um, and we had one weekly phone call. And so and I didn't even know the phone number. He had changed our home phone number um, to satisfy DHS. So they called Charlie. I told him really quickly what the deal was. And he said, take it. And I'm like, but I'll have a criminal record. And I didn't do it. And I didn't want to plead. And I didn't want to have to say I did anything that I know I didn't do. And he said, it doesn't matter. He said, what matters is what God thinks and what the family thinks. And we all know you're innocent. And he goes, God knows you're innocent. We know you're innocent. Your friends know the truth. And nobody else matters. Come home. So I took the deal. And I came home. <laughs> well, so, Kate, in the end, uh, you, you avoided... Uh prison time, which is uh, significant. You were reunited with your family. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us about your life since then. It's been uh, how many years now since this all happened? Um, well, since I came home, it's been um, almost four and a half years since I came home. What's it been like since you've been back home, reunited with your family? Well, being reunited with my family, of course, is wonderful, um, but it's been hard. Um, you know, a person doesn't go through what we, you know, what I went through and what my family went through and just forget it, you know, just because we were together again, didn't, it didn't make me, us forget it. Um, but, you know, they destroyed the life we had and their lives led to circumstances which profoundly affected us and changed us, but they didn't destroy us. What you do know, you mean we're by still, that? We're still, did you? And oh, well, well, I'm saying we're still standing. We're still a family. We're still strong. And we all know and believe and trust that the day will come when every single person who participated in, you know, the, the destruction that they tr did, they're going to have to answer for what they for their choices and for their actions. And in the meantime, you know, my family and I are each focusing on the path that God has us on, and we're moving ahead. Well, tell us about your path, the path that you're on. Okay. Um, well, I came home when I came home. Um, I had to, okay, I was on probation, and part of probation um, in Oregon requires that either you are working or at a job or you have to be enrolled in school, and um, I couldn't get hired by anybody in town, so um, I enrolled part-time in college, and I took some general classes for the first two terms, and then um, on December 18th, um, 2016, I had a cardiac arrest when the electrical system of my heart went haywire and uh, I actually collapsed directly onto Emily in our family room. Um, David, Your daughter, Emily. Yeah, my daughter, Emily. Um, David performed CPR until paramedics arrived. Uh, they shocked me three times to get my heart back into normal rhythm. And at the hospital, I was placed in a hypothermic coma. Um, I had... Um, had my teeth shoved through my bottom lip when I was intubated, and then I inhaled blood into my lungs, so I developed pneumonia from that. So that kind of complicated my recovery a bit, but I got through that. And um, I hey, what? How how close were you to death? Oh, I technically died, and I was resuscitated. My medical records say I'm a survivor of sudden death. So, yeah, I I I technically died, and then. Um, I was resuscitated. 
So resurrected. Yeah, or, yeah. I guess you know, as close close to death as you can get. Um, and I had a defibrillator uh, implanted in my chest, and there's a lead that's threaded through my heart and embedded in one of the ventricles, so that if my heart, if the electrical system goes nuts again, I can get internally shocked. But I haven't had any issues since my original cardiac arrest, and my cardiologist suspects it. The reason for that is because. Um, he thinks that the reason I had the cardiac arrest in the first place was a culmination of the years of unrelenting stress. Mm. And what about your children? How are they doing? Um, my children are great. <laughs> uh, they're they're all doing they're doing as well as they they're doing as well as they can be expected to be doing given the circumstances they lived through. Um, but yeah, you, you mentioned, uh, for instance, yeah, you mentioned your kids were in foster care. You're talking about the time when you were. Uh, under court supervision, is that right? Um, yeah. Well, I was, I was the day after. Okay, September tenth, two thousand thirteen, is when DHS took custody of Joshua, and then December third, um, they took custody of Bethany, and then the other kids stayed at home until I was until the day after I was arrested. Um, so I'll let you figure out the logic of that. So they took the the person who was the threat they took out of the home, and then they took the four kids the next day. So they took Emily, David, Sarah, and Isaac and separated them into three different foster homes on April 2nd, 2014. And then Charlie, Charlie was told by DHS that if he would divorce me, they would give him the kids back right away, but he refused. So they took, um, so then he had to fight for DHS for 10 months to get the kids back. And he got all five, he got all of them back except for Bethany because um, by February of 2015, Bethany um, had been diagnosed with a fatal lung disease um, as a result of them not treat, um, not managing her medical care properly. And so uh, she couldn't come home because she required 24-hour care and uh, Charlie was working. So he was not able to take care of Bethany's needs, and DHS didn't offer him the same support um, that they were offering the foster parent to take care of Bethany. So he had to agree to leave her in foster care, but he had the other five kids at home. So then I came home with the assurance that DHS would leave us alone, and two days later, after I two days after I came home, um, they reopened a case against me and their their concern was that I came home that was that was what they said they said I posed a threat to Joshua but not to any of my other children and they basically said and they wrote that Charlie was so brainwashed by me that he would not be able or willing to protect Joshua from me um, I had been home for less than 48 hours. We had people from the Middle Justice Project, including you, documenting my return home and subsequent reunification with my family. We had traveled up and back to Portland. And so I had had like no alone time with my family at all. And so that pretty much proved that DHS was acting maliciously and violating the terms of the settlement agreement that we had made. But um, the judge did not allow DHS to remove the kids. Um, he did allow DHS to intrude on my family's life for eight more months. And then two days before we were going to have our hearing and finally be able to lay out the evidence for the judge, DHS dismissed their case against us. And that was on October 18th, 2016. And then 
two months later is when I had my cardiac arrest. <laughs> so, have things. Um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, what? Oh, yeah. And then, so then the cardiac arrest was kind of a wake up call for me. Um, it forced me to ask why I had survived because statistically, um, 90% of people who experience a sudden cardiac arrest die, but I didn't. And so that kind of, you know, spend time thinking, well, well you know, what was God's reason for that? Um, and it was then that I first gave serious consideration to becoming an attorney. I knew that I wanted to help others who had been falsely accused. I wanted to change laws. Um, you know, I want to, I want, there, I want to be able to prevent other people from going through what I went through um, because it was all so needless and, and the damage and the destruction that it caused was just so widespread. And so, you know, I believe that God has a plan and that he allowed my family and me to go through that hell for a purpose. And so I sought out his reason for why I was still here and that put me on the educational path that I'm walking right now. So... Um, I will graduate in June with associate degrees for criminal justice and political science. And then in the fall, I will be transferring to a four-year four-year university where I will complete bachelor's degrees in criminal justice and political science with minors in psychology and ethics. And then it is my intention to attend law school. Wow, what a story. Uh, purpose in the pain, huh? Yeah, God, God brings... Beauty from ashes, right? Well, exactly. Uh, well, Kate, this is uh, it's been a moving story to hear what you've been through, and I, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I'm reminded that uh, how easy it is that uh, any of us find finds ourselves in a in a tough situation or can find ourselves in a really difficult. Uh, situation. So um, I appreciate um, you sharing your story and what you've been through and uh, and, and, and how, it, how you've been able to uh, piece your life back together with your family. Thanks so much. Thanks, Alec. This podcast is sponsored by Republic Book Publishers, which brings you books tackling the important issues of the day and the upcoming book Aftermath, When It Felt Like Life Was Over by Alec Klein. For more information, please check out republicbookpublishers.com. Thank you for joining us today. Please stay tuned for our next podcast involving stories from prisoners, their families, and those helping them find justice and redemption. And please subscribe to the Life on the Other Side podcast on iTunes.